You're listening to Into the Box. The podcast brought to you by Milton Keynes Dance Theatre. Where we'll have exclusive interviews and discuss dance-related questions. As we delve into this youth dance company's latest production, Pandora, and beyond to the dance industry. Hi, Harry! Hi, Danny. I am so excited. We're back! (laughs) Woo! (laughs) First episode of Series 2. I feel energised for the new season and I'm really excited for what's up. Mm -hmm. Doing this podcast every week with everything uncertain going on around us, going back to school, being given dates where we can do certain things. This is just a bit of normality and I hope that translates to whoever's listening. Yeah, it's just so nice to be able to just talk to people or, in the listener's case, listen to people (laughs) that we may not be able to talk to every day. So we thought opening season two, we'd have to open it with a bang, of course. And that's why we have a very special guest on. And when I mean special guest, we wouldn't have this podcast without him. (laughs) (laughs) It's company director Owen Lane. Yes. So we've known him for a few years now. But he had a whole dance career as a principal dancer in the Slovenian National Ballet, numerous achievements and lead roles before we knew him. So it'll be really interesting to find out how that experience then translated into creating this company and just the whole process, really. Yeah, it's not every day you wake up and go, do you know what? Dance company, let's go. And we are so glad he did make the company. (laughs) Yeah. There is literally so much we would have missed out on. No podcast, no Romeo and Juliet, no Pandora. We wouldn't have met half the people if it wasn't for Owen going, let's make a company, guys. (laughs) I know. I'm very excited to pick his brains. Me too. So let's welcome him on. Woo! So to kick off series two, we now have Owen Lane, our company director on. So Owen, before MKDT, there was, of course, Owen, the professional dancer. Yeah. So how did you come into the dance industry and what's your background in dance? Gosh, that's a long time ago now, <laughs> starting with the hard question, right? I mean, you guys both know my mum, she's yeah. a dance teacher and has been for, what, 20 years now, I think? <laughs> so I think that's just a natural start-up. Both my sisters danced, she obviously ran the school and then I just kind of fell into it. I mean, I was a properly hyperactive child as well, so... I'm pretty sure she was just like, can you please come and run around this studio? I don't actually care if you do any ballet, but please just burn this energy. <laughs> like, I started when I was about six or seven, it must have been. Started with grade one, R.E.D. <laughs> and it went from there. I remember my scythe dance to this day <laughs> with the thing over your shoulder, like digging in the old syllabus. But yeah, it was good fun. Don't know if you guys remember Miss Carol. I never got taught by her, but I remember in Jess's first, year she was there yeah so she has a son Tanner who's been my friend since probably when I was born more or less and he used to come and it just used to be a nice socializing event for me and Tanner basically to start with and it was only a few years after that I kind of got a bit more serious my mom was like do you want to go to a professional school I didn't say I want to go to professional ballet school because I want to be a ballet dancer I think at age 11 for most boys in particular you don't know that question really for yourself personally I think my mum just didn't want me to go to a local comprehensive secondary school because the ballet schools obviously come with that private education and she was very aware and it's got a lot better nowadays but it used to be really bad bullying at that time 2005 I know you were barely born at the time but 
that's when I went away to secondary school. So it would have been the bullying and the culture behind boys doing ballet. She was very worried that if I wanted to keep dancing, that that could become a problem. So I suppose you're in a way you're kind of safeguarded when you go to a school where all the boys do ballet. They can't say anything to you because they do it too. So I think that was kind of the initial kick to go there, her reasoning anyway. Or at least that's what I like to think. That's why she sent me away. <laughs> Just ship him off somewhere. <laughs> go to Birmingham. Go, go, go. And yeah, I was very lucky to get into Elmhurst. I was 11. They take about 15 boys maximum a year wow. between Elmhurst and Royal Ballet School. So very lucky. So I went up there and I loved it. I had a great eight years there. And I'm sure you're aware boys do tend to mature that bit later. So when we got there, all the girls were like, we want to do ballet and screaming after ballerinas for their autographs and things like this. And all the boys were still a bit just young boys. So it probably wasn't until I was like year 10, year 11, when I really thought, okay, I'm actually going to start taking this really seriously now. <laughs> I mean, I was always one for a performance. I'm not going to lie. I like getting on stage and being a bit dramatic. <laughs> so that probably suits me that that's what I ended up doing. And I think a lot of it's hard work, but you've got to have luck alongside that. Otherwise, you don't get where you're going. And... The fantastic, fantastic artistic director at my time at Elmhurst called Desmond Kelly. He was a dancer with what was then Sadler's Wells Ballet and became Birmingham Royal Ballet. He'd been a ballet master for years. I was very lucky and he very much took me under his wing and took care of me. He had this wonderful, deep, booming voice. You know, those kind of teachers that you're not scared of, you just respect them. And he'd walk in the room and he had this tone and you'd be there like... I will do whatever you ask me to. <laughs> he was the one who gave me the opportunity to dance with Birmingham Royal Ballet because he knew everyone there. I think she's just left the company, Marion Tate, but she was the assistant director there at the time and he called her and was like, I've got this boy and I'd like him to work with you. And I ended up doing, I don't know how many performances, I was touring all over the place with them and that's when it really was like, right, yeah, I like this, I could do this. Even though it was just UK touring with Birmingham Royal Ballet, as non-glamorous as places like Salford and Plymouth sound, <laughs> you know, it was great fun. We used to go up there, the whole company, tour buses, hotels, the lot, and then you'd get on stage and do that for a living. I was like, yeah, I could do this. So it came together for me. It doesn't for a lot of people. I was very lucky in what I've done. So once you got gotten to a point where dance was the career that you were going for how did you find the process of pursuing it in terms of auditioning and getting into companies and sort of adapting to the professional environment well I mean the first stage when you make that decision is auditioning it's you'll be aware Harry especially with Jess going through it all at the moment it's yeah. not a pleasant experience auditioning it's just you're walking in a room and asking to be judged it's not a nice position to put yourself in. You really have to just put yourself out there and be like, you know what, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to go for it. And you have to be prepared for those rejections. I mean, I was rejected from many a company, not always for how good you are, but they're like, you're not tall enough, you're not blonde enough, you're not this, that. It is really what ballet companies are. They are quite backwards in society. In my personal experience, the further east across Europe you head, they become more and more secluded to what they want. They're not really answering to this culture that we live in now where everyone has to be treated fairly. No, no, no. They're like, we want a six foot blonde male dancer who looks like Hercules, for example. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're going to have him no matter how good anybody else is. So you've got to prepare yourself 
when you're auditioning. I mean, I auditioned a fair amount. I didn't audition as many, some other people in my year group, I have to say. I was quite aware of my own abilities, what I could and what I couldn't do, and where I'd fit and where I wouldn't fit. So when I went auditioning, it was a lot of research, a lot of time spent going, okay, well, that company, take Munich Ballet, huge, fantastic company, but they were all tall at the time. They had like a six foot minimum. So I was like, I'm not going to waste my money because you've got to pay for everything. Flying to Munich, staying in a hotel to go in, maybe even do plié tendu glissé rond de jambe and get sent home. That's the reality of it. So I had to be very sensible. I wasn't fortunate enough to be in a position where I could just throw money at the situation. So I had to be really aware of what was going to be good for me in the long term. I also know my own personality and I think it's a really important thing as advice for anybody who wants to go into dance when they're young. Remember who you are. Don't just say, I want to do this and like, I don't care about anything else because who you are and like all the life you have around being a dancer is so important. And I knew for me that as much as I wanted to be in a ballet company, I didn't want to stand in the back holding spears. And I'm not judging people who are happy to do that. There are people who are happy to go into the massive, huge companies who have got like a hundred dancers on the books and spend their first two or three years standing with a spear or holding a lantern or something in whatever production. And I knew for me, if I went and did that, I'd be miserable because like I mentioned before, I do like the attention. I'm not gonna hide away from that fact. <laughs> so I siphoned it down and said, right, I wanna focus on some smaller companies with some interesting work where I can develop as a dancer by actually dancing on stage, not just in the studio all the time. Because for me, again, I find studio work quite repetitive. And you guys know when you get on stage, that's the moment you really learn or you grow or you love. So the audition process was kind of one of calculation for me, I want to say. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. I still don't enjoy auditions at all. And it's why whenever we do auditions with MKDT, I make such a huge effort to try and make people feel comfortable. Yeah. Because I just remember how horrible it was. You walk into these rooms, no one knows you, and it's a really vulnerable position to be in. So I really appreciate anybody who walks into our studio and they go, here I am, what do you think? Because it takes a lot of nerve to do that, in all honesty. So yeah, that was kind of the audition process. And then when I was in my graduate year, we were preparing our final, final performance at school. And I was doing the Prince Padadeau in Swan Lake, and I was doing the monkey and the Texas kangaroo rat from David Bentley's Still Life at the Penguin Cafe. It was fantastic. I loved them. But I never got a chance to actually do it on stage because about, what, two, three weeks before them, I properly broke my ankle. Oh, no. and I did it in June. I was out till about November wow. that year. Ouch. So that just siphoned all of my <laughs> hard work, the effort I'd put in up to there. I did it because I was exhausted at the time. I remember... There was a few other guys in my year group who were down, a couple had injuries, maybe somebody wasn't very well. And I kind of covered for a few people throughout that week. Earlier in the week, we did an orchestra rehearsal and one guy was injured or something and his partner was there like, well, I really need to practice with the orchestra. I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a go. She was a bit tall for me and I was like, I'll at least hold you so you can try these things. And on that rehearsal, she broke my nose. Oh, no. Bless her. I'm not going to name her. <laughs> she, <laughs> name and shame. She just clocked me with her elbow in the middle and it just cracked to the side and a little bit of blood. Oh. And it was probably like a warning sign, really, which I didn't take. 
and just pushed on and I was just so tired and we were just doing class and I was doing a step that our teacher Errol Pickford who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago he would used to do this step for Tonda Quis Padabore Sison Double pretty much every day I did that for about two years it's just a signature move of his and I just did it and on the Sison Coupe Assemble my back foot just went under Ouch. I just remember laying there thinking this is bad. <laughs> and I've injured myself a few times, as most professional dancers will have done. You know when you do it. There's just a feeling. You lay there and you think, oh, this is not going well. <laughs> like you can yeah. feel it kind of ballooning. So my audition process and my way to get to a company was delayed because of that. And I remember, I don't know how true all of this is. You know, there's a lot of chat that goes round <laughs> in a ballet school and a dance company as well. And I remember Desmond Kelly, who was my director, came up to me and said, it's such a shame you got that injury because BRB wanted you to join them the next season. Oh, and I remember just thinking, oh, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> and he told me this when I was laid on a bed in our medical centre with my leg up in oh, the air. I was like... Why a rub salt in the wound? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A bit harsh of him, really. But, you know, I'm, as usual, a big believer in things happen. And I think if I'd have gone to BRB, I'd have probably gone down that path that I was mentioning before about kind of standing there and spending a lot of time just in the corps de ballet. Maybe it wasn't what was right for me in the end. And it kind of worked out. I went down the line, recovered from that injury in January following that injury. There's a company, an opera company down south called Glyndebourne Productions. And I got this opportunity to go down there and dance in their version of Onyegin which was really good. It got me out of school because Elmhurst were fantastic when I got injured. They were like, you're coming back in September. We're going to help you through your rehab, get you back on your feet. They gave me a lifeline there because I didn't have to do that. So I do appreciate everyone who offered me the chance at that time, the principal and the artistic director, Robert Parker, who came to me, said, look, you can go out and do this opera production. They're going to pay you. It'll be your first kind of paid full production work. And I was like, okay, fantastic. I'll go down and do that. Just a little tip, if you ever want to make money, work for operas. <laughs> Don't work for ballets. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Note that down. As a dancer in an opera, you work for the time you're there. So it's like a short contract, but I think that just is more money in opera. <laughs> so <laughs> just kind of throwing money at this production. I was like, oh gosh, I was 19 at the time. I just remember being like, I don't know what to do with this money. <laughs> that was great. And then we finished that in June and I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I made a phone call to a guy called Ronald Savkovich, who is a really dear, dear friend of mine now. He was also my first boss at the time. He was my first director. He ran a company in Croatia, in Rijeka, which is on the coast of Croatia. So not a bad place to live all in all. And I called him and just said, look, is there any chance? Because he'd seen me dance before. I was like, is there any chance I can join you? Because I've been injured and all that kind of stuff for so long. I was just like, I just want to get on stage and dance. And he gave me the opportunity to join that for the start of the next season. And he was really a role model for me as a dancer. He'd been a principal dancer in Berlin and we're still regularly in contact today. And he gave me everything, settled me into the company. Yeah, he was just amazing with me, really. He didn't have to spend all that time outside of the studio making sure I was happy where I was living and making sure these things were going well. Settling in a different country, that's a different thing. To learn a bit of Croatian, to get past, it's different currency, different culture, different things like that. But generally in the ballet world anyway, it's studio language is English because it's such a huge international business. Obviously I was from the UK, Hungary, Slovenia, Romania, we had Italians, Spanish. So you're all kind of 
grew in and we're just lucky as English people that our language tends to be the one that people fall to. So that helped the settling a lot, that's for sure. And yeah, he just kind of settled me in and taught me so much. <laughs> like, so much of the stuff that I teach you when I'm teaching you guys or whoever in the company comes from him. Yeah, really, he gave me that foundation and basis. So that's my journey. Everyone's is a bit different, I suppose, but mine was a little bit of a dramatic journey. I like to do things dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> so within your extensive career, as we've sort of heard, what would you say has been like that one peak moment where you've gone, oh yeah, I would say that was like my number one. Uh, I, could, I know exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know exactly when, as a dancer, I'll say, because obviously now doing the choreography and stuff, it's a very different thing. You can't compare them. We did a production in Rijeka, about two years into my career, maybe. And it was a production by Leon Mujic, who's a fantastic, fantastic choreographer. He's a real kind of like pusher of this neoclassical style. Taught me a hell of a lot of what my style has become and kind of adapted from him. And he did a production called Midsummer Night's Dream. I was very lucky to be cast as Puck in it, which for anybody who knows Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck does a hell of a lot <laughs> in the story. <laughs> and it was just this marathon of a performance I think it was about an hour and 15 minutes long and I was on stage practically the whole time wow. I had one real quick change you're talking quick <laughs> there are quick changes <laughs> and then there was this one god bless the makeup lady who I accidentally elbowed in the face on one show <laughs> it's dark and you're trying to whip jackets off and things and you're like <laughs> I was trying to say I'm sorry I'm sorry and I was like running on stage at the same time <laughs> That would have been January 2016 or something like that. That run of shows when we premiered it over a couple of weeks. I was probably in the best shape of my life because of Lao. I'd been whipped into such good shape, both physically and classically and technically as well. I remember one rehearsal we did about a week before the shows. He literally said to me, I don't know how you're doing this choreography that I have... <laughs> given you and he was like is it too hard is like can you go faster i was like well i'll try because i felt so on top of it it was just up 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 exhausted physically like the days when i like would have to drag myself out of the bed <laughs> lead legs just weighing down but yeah from a dancing perspective i've done other performances where i've maybe felt more emotional it wasn't a particularly emotional production as such but certainly from a personal dancing perspective I'm a rarely a person to go oh that was good <laughs> about myself but I do look back at that with a lot of pride because it was just so hard the pirouettes and the jump I just had everything under the sun every pirouette that could be imagined was in that production I think I just remember turning right turning left and being like I don't know where I am anymore and just <laughs> so that was definitely I'd say from a dancing perspective technically and everything like that the highlight of my career yeah, definitely so by the end of your career you managed to be a principal dancer you'd had numerous principal roles done all of these amazing things so what was behind the decision to leave that behind and come back to the UK and start your own company well I'll tell you firstly when I left dancing I didn't know I was going to start my own company ah. at all <laughs> like, it hadn't even crossed my mind that I would launch into this new company when I left I had no idea what I was gonna do I left knowing that I needed a break the dance world is I don't want to say things that are going to put anybody off it it's brutal and it hits you 
physically, but it does hit you emotionally. You go through a lot of very intense moments. It's almost like living life under some kind of microscope. You have to be so raw with your emotions because you might be dancing something that you've got to pull from reality. You've got to use what you feel. Your body's been dragged along this path and it works differently for some people. But personally, I just was getting to this almost this breaking point where my body probably could have still kept going. I mean, I've got injuries in my body to this day that are just there. Like I've got a duff left knee and my right hip's a little bit bad and the base of my back is often sore. That's just par for the course, I think. So my knee was probably the main one. It was just causing me daily pain that really made me go, I have to rest, I have to stop for a while because I'd been dancing on it and it was getting worse and worse and worse. That was from a physical point, but the main thing was mentally. I was just exhausted. I've got a really dear friend who's still in that company. I was in Slovenia in Ljubljana at the time, called Filippo, who I remember we were having a conversation a few days before I left, and he asked me a very similar question, like, why are you leaving? I just I remember just saying, because I have to. And he asked me, what are you going to do? And I thought, like, I have no idea. <laughs> I literally, my brother Callum came over, we packed up the car, because I had my car over there at the time, and we just packed up all my stuff. Obviously, I'd given notice. I didn't just disappear from the company. <laughs> I gave notice before that. We just packed up, and I remember we drove home. Quite a long journey, and we were just talking. And it was for so long when you trained to be a dancer. So I went to school at 11. You go through all the process. Ballet company, you're going to dance in a ballet company. Ballet company, over and over again, you think this thought. You fall into these ballet companies you going on this career path and I was lucky I kind of joined as this like demi soloist soloist principal you get these contract upgrades and then you leave it and you think the first time in a long time you have that freedom of thought to think I don't have to follow it one path honestly when I left in that February I remember thinking I'm gonna come back I'll dance I'll go back to a company I might even come back to the same company I just need a break then it Obviously, it panned out differently, but it was a real complex decision. But one I actually just made, I almost sound really cheesy, made it with my heart, to be honest. I just mm. said, I know what I need. And it's one of the biggest decisions I ever made where I didn't really listen to anyone else. I didn't want voices in my ear because the director at the time, she was, when I told her I was going to leave, she's like, no, you're not. You're going to stay here and I'll give you this and you're going to dance this and it'll all be fine and I just remember I had to be kind of like no listen to yourself listen to yourself it's very easy to be swayed like that isn't it you know somebody tells you I'm gonna give you all this and then you just go oh, okay and then you forget about yourself so it was probably one of the decisions I've made purely for myself in my life yeah I had no regrets looking back on it at all so what made you go I want to make a youth dance company what was that moment where you went that could be something well I'd done a couple of little choreographic bits before I stopped dancing so I kind of knew I had interest in that in all honesty they were a bit dry from a choreographic perspective they were trying things like when you start to draw or you start to make music you've got to try and experiment so I wasn't certain that I could do it and then I worked with you guys and a group of other people at RLSB to make the Savage Beauty piece and I taught you at various times, summer schools and things. But when we really got into choreography and I started to kind of be able to teach you not just ballet, but different styles, different ways of moving, it just kind of got me. I could see week on week that progression. I think we used to have, what, two rehearsals a week leading up to those shows two years ago now? Is it two, three years? 
It's about two years. Yeah, must be 2019. So coming up on two years, I mean, you guys have obviously developed massively since then. Speaking as obviously, because I'm a male teacher, with Harry in particular, I've just been able to kind of throw things at him and watch him develop from this kind of boy and he's slowly growing up and I mean literally up, oh. and, <laughs> up. <laughs> and just to see that development technique the partnering ability that have come along it's just so different when you dance 99% of the time you're dancing for yourself that's what it is you go on stage and you feel fantastic when you finish a performance, especially if it goes well. <laughs> but then when we did the Savage Beauty piece and I watched it, it was just a really different feeling. And I was like, I want that feeling. And it was, how can I have that? And I remember speaking to Jess and Liv, I think pretty much an hour after we finished that show. I just said to them, I was like, what do you think about doing this? And they were like, on board straight away. And I'll be honest, I remember the moment I don't want to blow Jess's head up quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on the premiere of Savage Beauty when she comes on for the third section. I'd given Jess this horrendous veil that she had to dance under and she couldn't see and she couldn't do anything. And quite tricky choreography as well. And she nailed it at the time. And I remember just saying to her before she went on for that stage, I remember just being like, Jess, just let it go. If you fall, you fall. Just go down and come back up and just let that weight hold you. And she just took everything in and did it better than I even knew she could do it. I think on the premiere, it wasn't a massive fall, but she kind of like put her hands down after one turn. And it wasn't in the choreography, it just it, it happened because I'd stuck this giant veil on her and she couldn't see anything. <laughs> And it really hit me, and I, you guys know I cry a lot of things. <laughs> but I remember I cried on that show, and I don't want to give her all the credit, but that was the moment that I really thought, because of she'd taken everything that I'd given, it was kind of that moment that everything pulled together, and I went, well, this is good. I like seeing how you guys react to what I can give you, and then it's just such a nice feeling when you look at someone, you go, you know, they've just achieved that out of that and I think what Jess is achieving now is a testament to that kind of two-year arc across obviously it's not just mine she has loads of teachers and it's all up to her she's worked phenomenally hard but that arc of what she's learnt, and if you look at her now versus then she's just gone like up and up and up into this stratosphere and it's a very proud moment that I think that I played just a little part in that so that's kind of what always has been the aim for MKDT and why we keep doing what we're doing despite all the difficulties that have been presented. <laughs> <laughs> so to finish off part one, what were you expecting before you'd made MKDT a reality and were formulating it in your head? What did you want to get out of it and what did you think you could give to others? <clears throat> well, first, I mean, to be honest, I'm starting a business. I want to have a business that runs and runs well and supports my life. I wanted to make it my job, my career. So that's obviously an underlying thing that is always there you know as much as anyone will tell you money doesn't matter money doesn't buy happiness money is what it is in our society in our lives it props up what you do with your life effectively simply from the business perspective we have to earn money to cover the costs to put on the productions to let the kids do these experiences and have these moments so i wanted to have a business that functioned not coming from a business background really researching everything from that perspective so I needed to know that it was viable and I wasn't launching down a path that was just going to be like maybe artistically amazing 
but I had to work in wherever to cover everything all the time. I knew obviously when you start things can be slow, but I needed to know it had an up cycle. So that's kind of that side of it. And then obviously they're supporting these kids and what I knew I could give to you guys was my experience, what I've done, what I've learnt. I just thought I could do something that would help people, help you guys, help the young students at the time, but also something that felt really good for me to kind of give all this stuff back. I was never, ever the best dancer out there. I was just a very studious dancer. I used to learn and try and absorb and we'd have all these different teachers and all these different choreographers. I was very lucky to dance loads of different styles by various different people. And then just try and like absorb and learn things from them. So it was always that thing in me, like I've learned all this stuff and I've put all this stuff inside. Am I just going to let that go? No, I want to give it to people. That was always what I knew I could give you guys. And it is nice to see now we were a couple of years into this project that it is paying off because I can see it in all the dancers and especially the ones that I have worked with for that amount of time that I can kind of have that plan with. So that was always one thing I knew I could give. Another thing I wanted to give was experience to kids, not just with the dancing side of things. I always wanted people to see theatre and have a life in theatre. A lot of kids grow up and they're like, oh, I want to be on stage. Unfortunately for a lot of people, that's just not the reality. And that's fine because there's tons of fantastic roles within theatres. You know, you need costume designers and you need set designers and you need makeup artists and you need people who work in the offices on the PR departments and you need people who work producing podcasts and things like this. <laughs> you know, It's what you need to run a successful anything you've got to have all these different factors so I knew as soon as I started it and another conversation I had with Jess and Liv very early on is I want you to have experiences that aren't just limited to performance Jess was the assistant choreographer for Romeo and Juliet for example she for the first time probably in her life was not on stage she had to watch from side stage apart from when we had a couple of injuries and she was just thrown on <laughs> apart from that you know she had to watch and I know she found that difficult at times you know and Liv was the costume designer as well and she kind of had that side of things so she had loads to learn and it's always going to be an element when Danielle came to me in November with the ideas for the <laughs> podcast in the first place and obviously Harry you were already doing them so it was just a nice match we could kind of put you together <laughs> that was fantastic because it gives you an opportunity to do something that's not necessarily dance related but you're very much a part of the company moving forward so that was something that I didn't know I could give I just wanted to give as much as possible because I'm not a trained costume designer and I'm not a trained makeup artist <laughs> but I try and put the right people in the right place and let them grow and learn over time. you got to do things to learn, I suppose. And then obviously from my perspective, there's also the personal artistic fulfilments that I get when I produce these shows. I go through a long process of what I want to do, where I'll need it to go, what I want it to say, achieve. You know, I see performing as kind of like a moving piece of art. People will put a painting up in a gallery and it will stay there forever. But we have that luxury of going on a stage and for an hour, an hour and a half, creating a piece of art that is always going to be different. It's live, but it's got a message and it's just really exciting, I think, for me personally. So when I create things, that's what I love doing. It's why 
Pandora's been such a joy because it's just got such a strong message throughout it all. I don't like to be real political and have those kind of views, but that's why I discussed it with all the dancers so we could kind of come to a collective view of what we want to say with every production we do. And then obviously it pays off when you see an audience and how they respond and how they react and are they affected. I don't want to create pieces that don't affect the people that watch them. I want them to come in, watch an MKDT performance and leave with something, a thought, a memory, a feeling, whatever it is. And if I do that, then that's achieving everything that I want to achieve, really, from an artistic perspective, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Into the Box. We'll be back next week where we'll once again be joined by company founder and director Owen Lane for part two of his interview, where he'll discuss the reality of setting up a youth dance company, the messages behind each of MKDT's productions, and his hopes for the company's future. In the meantime, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes. Also, we'd love it if you could subscribe to get notified of the latest episodes wherever you're listening to your podcast, alongside rating and reviewing us, which would be really, really helpful. We really always appreciate audience response. So you can always reach out to me and Harry on their MKDT Instagram, or you can reach out on our personal Instagrams. Mine is xox.danny, that's three I's with another X. Mine is Harry J. Yo. And also, one more thing to say this week make sure you head to the MK Dance Theatre website to buy tickets for Pandora, which is premiering at the end of May. And we are so excited. It's all COVID safe. So get your tickets, guys. Yeah, get into those theatres and come see possibly the first show back into Milton Keynes. So Buy your tickets, get out there, and we look forward to speaking with Owen next week. Thanks so much once again, guys. Bye. Bye.